Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Last week, I started the sermon talking about shepherds. And I spent a great deal of time talking about how through God's word, the shepherd is given to us as God's ideal example of leadership. Kings are not God's ideal of leadership. Pharisees are not God's ideal of leadership. It's the shepherd all the way from the Old Testament through the New Testament. And the reason why that is is because the shepherd's responsibility is to care for the flock, but not just to care for the flock, to care for the flock so that the flock can be presented to God as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice. And that idea is brought from the Old Testament all the way into the New Testament. The word for pastor in the New Testament is shepherd. And his responsibility is to present, care for, tend, in order to present God's people to God as a sacrifice. Now the opposite to that, when a shepherd is not doing his job, rather than presenting the sheep to the Lord as a sacrifice, the shepherd can be guilty of sacrificing the sheep for his own personal gain. You see this in uh, church settings where the pastor thinks that the church exists for him to stroke his ego, to make sure that he has enough resources to live the kind of lifestyle that he wants. The sheep are sacrificed for him. You can see this in the local family. You can see this in business. Any situation where a leader does not see his responsibility as caring for the pasture he's been given, but rather seeing the pasture as his own personal property that he can do whatever he wants on that property. And therefore, rather than preparing the sheep to sacrifice to the Lord, he prepares the sheep to be sacrificed to himself. Now the reason why I'm bringing this up is because when shepherds turn selfish and start slaughtering the flock, the Lord gets very angry. This is actually brought up in one of the prophets, Zechariah 10.3, where God says, I've been looking across Israel and I found the shepherds who were acting wickedly and I am angry at them and I'm going to discipline them. Now, I'm saying this because as we're reading through 2 Samuel, last week's message was a wake-up call for us because all of the things that we're reading in the three chapters last week and the three chapters this, this week are directly connected to David failing at his responsibility as a shepherd. He was derelict in his duties. His responsibility was to shepherd Israel, to look after Israel. But instead, he took the sheep of Israel and sacrificed them for himself. This is what the prophet Nathan came and told him in the parable. You were supposed to be looking after these sheep, but you went outside of your own boundaries and you took the sheep you're supposed to be looking for and you use them for your own personal gain. 
It was a convicting message and a wake-up call for us because it reminds us that all of us, if God views leadership, the ideal leadership, as a shepherd, that's the ideal example of leadership as a shepherd, then all of us should be viewing any leadership role that we have as being a shepherd. It doesn't matter if you're just a dad over your own home or you're a mom looking after your kids or if you're a boss at work or if you're a college student and you're in charge of some project that you have to work with other people with or you're, uh, at your job, you have been given responsibility to oversee this little, bit, this little area. That responsibility that God has given you isn't so that you can build your own ego and build your own platform and use the people there to step on to get to the next level and wherever you want to go. Your responsibility is to to care for them. And last week was a tough message because it was a wake-up call and realizing that in all areas, if we are not good shepherds, there are repercussions. There are consequences. And as we started going through this, this convicting message has a way of kind of seeping into our soul because you may be at a place now where you treasure God above all things and you're here in this church and you love God and you're like, man, I, I, I wanna be a good shepherd. I hear what you're saying and, and I'm on that, I'm, I'm with you. I'm working as hard as I can to just keep my eyes on that pasture and that pasture alone. But If I'm honest, I haven't always been like this. I have not always been a good shepherd. I am now, I'm trying as hard as I can to keep my eyes on Christ and not care about any other pasture. I just want this, but I haven't always been like this. I wasn't a good dad to my kids growing up. I chose career over my kids. I wasn't there when they needed me. I put the church in front of my family. It was convicting last week because this is the reality that you may be here in the place where God wants you, but there may be very real consequences to the decisions that you made in the past. It is very possible that you are not in a marriage that you were because of shepherd failures in the past, The consequences came with divorce and you can't ever get those years back. And so I say this because that is a very real thing that you have to wrestle with and you have to deal with. But last week's message, it doesn't stand on its own. You have to have this week's message. And here's the reason why. Because for those of you who feel like you're swimming in the guilt of not being the shepherd you should have been. You're doing your best now, but in the past you have failed and you feel like those failures are haunting you. They haunt you every time you go into a job interview or they haunt you every time you talk to somebody and they ask about your past. I have good news for you. Because if that's where you're living, then today's message is for you. Okay? All right. Let's get into it. But before we do, will you please turn the air conditioning up a little bit? My, I, I, don't, I can't feel my fingers. <laughs> so 
So 2 Samuel chapter 16. Now we're gonna do similar to what we did last week. I wanna get through three chapters because this story stands together. There's three chapters and then there's three chapters. So there's, the, there's God working and Absalom rising and then there's God working and dealing with Absalom and God loving David. These two messages go together so we have to get through the entire text. It's a lot. I won't be able to read all of it but I'll summarize it as we go through. And then next week, hopefully, we get back to our regular scheduled program where I'll read every word. And you'll just have to listen. <laughs> Second Samuel 16, verse 1. So we pick up the story in 16 off of last week in 15. David is fleeing for his life because his son Absalom has launched a rebellion to take the throne. Absalom is moving towards Jerusalem and David is leaving Jerusalem and as he leaves Jerusalem he heads out the back door goes down into the valley and heads up the Mount of Olives so where we pick up David is just about the top of the Mount of Olives coming around the back side of it when David has passed a little beyond the summit the summit of the Mount of Olives Ziba the servant of Mephibosheth met him with a couple of donkeys saddled bearing 200 loaves of bread a hundred bunches of raisins, a hundred of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, what, why have you brought these? And Ziba answered, well, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. The bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, well, where is your master's son? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem. Now who is his master's son? His master was Saul, and the son he's talking about is a man named Mephibosheth. Remember him from a couple chapters ago. I'll get into it in a minute, but that's what he's asking about. He's saying, where is Mephibosheth? And Ziba said to the king, behold, he remains in Jerusalem because he said to me, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. And the king said to Ziba, all right. Well behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, oh I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord the king. Let's pause there and reflect. So David is leaving the city because his son is coming for his throne and is going to kill him. And as he's leaving the city at the end of 15, there is a panic because everyone has to pick sides. Whose king are you going to serve when all of the stress of the world starts settling in? Are you gonna side with the new king who seems to be stronger and have more power and more people are following him? Or are you gonna follow the king that God chose? David wasn't perfect, but he is the king God chose. This throne was not Absalom's to take, and God was not giving it to Absalom. Absalom had no right to take this throne, but he's coming into town, and he wants it. He's gonna take it by force. And so in the panic, everyone is trying to figure out who are you gonna serve? Whose team are you on? Are you gonna side with the new regime, or are you gonna stay faithful to David? And in the middle of this panic, David heads out He's up on the Mount of Olives, and this guy named Ziba that we met from 2 Samuel 9, 1 through 13 comes up to him with this care package. And David's kind of confused. He says, I, I thought I told you 
to look after Mephibosheth. Now just a quick recap back to 2 Samuel 9. Jonathan had a son named Mephibosheth. And he was dropped as a child and his legs were crippled. And so he grew up when David took the throne out in some outskirts town with um, a, a dad uh, that no, it was a, a dad from the former regime. He had no power, no prestige. He was a nobody. He wanted to just, everybody to forget who he was. But David loved Jonathan. And so he sent out essentially a, um, a call. Is there anyone from Saul's family still alive that I can show kindness to? And Mephibosheth was found and he was brought in and David said, I'm gonna give you all of your grandfather's property. You're gonna eat at my table every night and I'm gonna give you a servant and his family is gonna serve you and look after you. That servant was Ziba. So David is looking at Ziba with his care package thinking, why are you here? I thought I told you to stay at Mephibosheth's house and take care of him. And Ziba tells him, well, here's the funny thing. When all the commotion started, Mephibosheth told me that he was gonna use this opportunity to reestablish himself as king on the throne. That man that's been sitting at your table, he's betraying you. Now, if at first glance you read this and you say, God, what a tragedy, that's, that's so sad. Put a pin in that. Because we're gonna find out in 2 Samuel 19, when we get there next week, that this story that Ziba is telling is actually a lie. That's not what happened. Ziba is self-serving and he's using the commotion and bringing gifts to David to deceive him into getting something for himself. He's exploiting all of the drama and the commotion. Mephibosheth is gonna set the story straight when he meets David and his story is gonna be, no, I, I'm crib, I can't move. And so somebody went to go saddle the donkey and Ziba brings it in and I ask him, what are you doing? And he says, I'm getting out of here. And he left me, that's what really happened. But David doesn't know that part of the story and he doesn't have time to sift through all the details and listen to this person's case and listen to this person's case because the confusion that comes with tragedy, it clouds his mind. He can't think clearly. He doesn't see what's actually going on. He doesn't have time to get everybody's perspective. He can't even really see what God is up to in the moment. All he knows is that tragedy has struck my house and my son is coming for me. And he's coming for me because God told me this was gonna happen. And so I don't know what's going on. I don't know if I'm gonna make it. I don't know if my life is coming to an end. I don't know if God is gonna sustain me. See, when David was in the wilderness running from Saul, he had this promise. Because a prophet came to his house one day and said, David, you're gonna be king and I'm gonna anoint you. And all those years of running in the wilderness, David could hold on to that promise because that thing that God said had not come to pass yet. So the whole, all the time David's running in the wilderness, running from Saul, he knows that, he's, that, they, that, that Saul's never gonna catch him. He knows that, God, that, that he's not gonna die in the wilderness because God has given him a promise. And until that point where he becomes king, he's still here. But the last thing that God said to David was that because of your sin, 
because of what you did in private, I'm gonna send calamity to your house and that thing is gonna be done to you in public. So, so David, he can't tell which way is up or down. He doesn't know what's going on and so people are exploiting and taking advantage of that. And what this is showing us, well, reminding us, because we all know this, is that when the stress levels increase, nobody thinks clearly. When all of the calamity starts setting in, the things that you thought you knew, you start questioning. Because you're just not really sure which way is up and which way is down. So the author is starting the story showing us that the state that David is in. He is in no state to save himself, is the point. He can't take up arms, he's not gonna fight his own son. David is going to need someone to fight his battles for him because he has failed as a shepherd and the only way to get restored is for God to intervene and to do something. David's out of options, he can't do anything. And the author reinforces that in the next section, verses five through 14, because as David passes past the Mount of Olives, he goes down the other side, he heads up towards the Jordan River, he goes through a town that used to be run by Saul, it's called Barum. And as he's walking through this town, this guy named Shemi, who is from Saul's family, starts shouting curses at David. You're pathetic. You know why this is happening to you, David? Because you stole the kingdom from Saul. You don't have any business wearing his crown. God is punishing you for what you did to Saul's family. Insult after insult after insult. Now David is walking with his mighty men and there's a couple hundred people following him and all of them are listening to Shemi shout out blasphemy. He's cursing David. And David's men, they're getting a little upset. One of them turns to David and says, hey, let me go shut that guy up. And by shut that guy up, I mean kill him. And David turns to him and says, don't touch that guy. Because that might be God speaking curses to me through him. What? What, David? David is so in the throes of drama and caught up in all of the circumstances and the confusion that he cannot see clearly and he literally starts thinking that someone who is cursing him, God actually might be speaking through that. That guy might be a prophet, don't touch him. Who am I to say anything against what God has done? The last thing I heard from God the prophet told me I'm under judgment, so this aligns with what I know. Don't touch him. This reinforces what happens in tragedy, that you can't see clearly. So what does David keep doing? He doesn't shut the guy up. He doesn't command his troops to go kill him. He keeps going. Now that's important, because that reality might just be the answer to the prayer that you have been praying recently. We as God's people are not, we're, we're, 
we're very familiar with the, the prayer, Lord, my world is crumbling and everything is falling apart. I don't know which way is up. I don't know which way is down. I don't know what to do next. I can't even see you working. I don't even know if you are in this. I am so lost, I don't know what to do. You pray that prayer? The Word of God is telling you, through an example, this man named David, hey, you're not the only person who's ever suffered with this. So look at what David did and take notes. When you don't know what to do, keep going. When you have been praying on this same thing for two years, and you're saying, I don't know what he's doing, keep going. When you are so lost that you don't know what is up or down, and something comes your way, and you're like, I don't even know if this is a blessing or a curse. I don't know even, I don't know if God is sending this, or if the enemy is sending this, and if I take this, I'm going to be even further off the path. What do you do? You don't make a judgment call because you're blinded, you're confused, your mind is clouded. You're not wise enough to make a judgment call. You've only got one move to make in a moment like that, and that is keep moving towards Christ. There is one thing that will never fail you, and that is fix your eyes on Jesus. You, what do you do? You keep going. You keep your eyes on him and you ask him to build your faith and you ask him to make things clear and you ask him to work on your behalf because you don't know what to do. Your mind is so clouded, things have been done to you or because of your own past shepherding failures, you are under the consequences of your own sin and you can't see clearly what do you do. You keep chasing after Christ. Do not stop. Do not make a judgment call that you will regret later. You keep your eyes on Christ. You get in his word and you focus on him. You treasure him above all other things and you let that decision that has to be made set to the side until you are clear enough in your head to make it. That's what David is showing us. And when you do that, God shows himself strong. The prophet Isaiah says it like this. God rolls up his right sleeve, and he bears his mighty arm. And he starts working on your behalf in ways that you are completely ignorant to. You are so lost, so on the other side of the Jordan River, so disconnected to the politics in the city, you don't know what's going on, that's okay. You don't need to know what's going on. You serve a king who does know what's going on and all you have to do is focus in on him and he will provide everything that needs to be taken care of without you needing to know the details. And the story pivots in 16:15 and starts showing us how God is doing that without David being anywhere around. Go to 2 Samuel 16:15. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel was with him. And when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, long live the king, long live the king. Just a brief backstory, Hushai was one of David's best friends, and Ahithophel 
was one of David's wisest counselors. So both of these men served David, but in the shakeup, Ahithophel switched sides and is serving Absalom. But Hushai stayed with David. And so what David did was when David met Hushai on the way out of town, David said, I want you to go back into the city. And when Absalom shows up, I want you to be my spy. Tell him that you switch sides and that you're serving him now, not me. And maybe, just maybe, God will use you to sow division so that my son won't steal the throne. So Hushai comes up and meets Absalom as Absalom is coming into town. And Hushai says in verse 16, long live the king, long live the king. And in verse 17, Absalom says to Hushai, is this your loyalty to your friends? Is this how you treat your friends? Why did you not go with your friend? He's talking about David. And Hushai says to Absalom, no, from whom the Lord and his people and all the men of Israel have chosen, His I will be, and with him I will remain. I will serve whoever the king is. I have no allegiances to my friend. And again, whom should I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Ahithophel, give your counsel. Now that I'm here in town, what should I do next? Buckle up, because Ahithophel tells Absalom in verse 21, go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof of the palace, And Absalom went in one by one to his father's concubines in the sight of all of Israel. Now in those days, the counsel of Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. So Absalom comes into town and we are presented with the two advisors, one Hushai, which is David's spy, and the other Ahithophel, who has been the counselor for years under David. And Absalom comes to Ahithophel and says, all right, what do I do next? I wanna be king, what's the first step? And Ahithophel says, the castle is filled with David's concubines. If you want all of Israel to know that you're the true king, you need to take David's property. And you need to do it in front of everybody. Everyone needs to hear and see that you are the man. And Absalom, it strokes his ego and he says, all right, let's do it. So they pitch a tent on the roof of the castle. And out in front of everybody, Absalom goes in and he sleeps with all of the concubines. Now this is a pretty jarring story. It ends in verse 23 with us being told that Ahithophel's advice was, was seemed, it was trusted as being the exact word of God. So if Ahithophel said something, everybody listened to it. 
But this section is in here for two very specific reasons. Why tell that story? Well, the first reason why the author wants you to know that story is because as you read it, he wants you thinking about 2 Samuel 12, 11. What is 2 Samuel 12, 11? That's when the prophet Nathan came to David and said, this is what God says about what you did with Bathsheba. Because you destroyed a man's life and took his property, and you slept with Bathsheba in secret, God's judgment on your house for being such a poor and derelict shepherd is that he is going to come and he's gonna bring calamity to your entire home and what you did in private, he's going to do to you in public. Why do we have this? Because this is the fulfillment of God's word. There is not a single thing that David could have done to stop what God said was going to happen. That's important. Because there's a lot of challenges in our day against things that God's word have said are going to happen. And the scripture is reminding us that it doesn't matter what the world does, it doesn't matter what plan they come up with, it doesn't matter what strategy the enemy puts together, it it doesn't matter. All of it has already been foreseen and foretold and planned in the heart of God, and every plan they forge was already a plan he said was going to happen, and it will serve his purposes, not theirs. Why, why do we have something so jarring in here? It's to remind us that God is working even in the midst of people who think they have more power than him. Ahithophel thought that this was his plan, but it wasn't, it was God's plan. Absalom thought that he was the man dominating his power, but he wasn't, he was a puppet being used by God. And David thought he was losing everything but on the other side of the Jordan River, with no power to save his own life, God is working to fulfill his word and sustain his promises. But there's another reason why this is in here. And we kind of miss this unless we make sure we pay attention to the genealogies. I mentioned this last week, but it probably went over our heads because genealogies are confusing. But I'll bring it up again here today because there is something really juicy about this ask that Ahithophel gives to Absalom. When we're introduced to Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11:3, we're told that Bathsheba is the daughter of a man named Eliam. And we're also told in 2 Samuel 23:34, we haven't gotten there yet. But anyone reading this book with any knowledge at the time of it writing, all the way up until probably the second temple period, they would have paid attention, they would have known. They would have been familiar with the genealogy that says that Eliam's father was Ahithophel. Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather. This plan to shame David by having his son sleep with his concubines, it was deeply personal. David ruined Ahithophel's family by what he did with Bathsheba, and Ahithophel hated David. And so when given the opportunity, he's thinking in his mind, what's the best way to get back at this scum? I know. I'll bring the same shame that you brought on my family on your family, except it wasn't a hit the fills plan. 
This was God bringing judgment on David. Now, as we see this, even though it's deeply personal, we see God's fingerprints on this. All the people at play, everyone in this story thinks they're in control, but they're not. The ones who think they're not in control, they know who is in control and they trust him. But this is important. When you read the word of God, you are presented with characters, with real names, real people who think they run the town, but they don't run the town. They're under the influence of something else. And it's an important reminder to us about who's really in charge in the situations that we go through in life because it is so easy to be so overwhelmed, to be so confused and clouded of mind that you can't tell which way is up and which way is down and start believing the news that tells you that people, fallen sinful people, hold your future in their hands. That you're at their mercy that you won't be able to feed your family unless you bow your knee. That everything about your world is controlled by just a few people who decide everything for you. The word of God presents a very different picture to us. The world we live in is governed, ruled, and overseen by a creator God who does not miss the details. Hear me. The panic that has set in in God's people has no business living in the hearts of God's people. Because who you have been told is in charge is not really in charge. You are being lied to. There is a God in heaven who oversees all of time and your destiny and it doesn't matter what the news says, he is still in control. There is a lamb who is worthy to open the seals. There is one who is worthy to sit on the throne. Not 10 and they've gotta duke it out. There is one. And as we read through the story, I want you to see how helpless David feels and how strong our mighty God is at working his purposes and plans to keep David established on the throne with zero help from David. Let's go to 17 verse one. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Let me choose 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic and all the people who are with him will flee and I will strike down only the king. I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel because Ahithophel is always right. And frankly, here, he is right. If Absalom agrees to Ahithophel's plan, it's over. Ahithophel will pursue David. He is so clouded of mind, he can't see which way is up. He doesn't know what to do. He is weak and he will be overcome. But look what happens in verse five. Absalom says, 
Call Hushai the archite also and let us hear what he has to say. Why? You've got the best advice. Everybody agrees. Why are you asking for a second opinion? And why is it the guy that you don't know is David's spy? Because there is a God in heaven who oversees all things and these men who think they're in charge are not in charge. Absalom thinks it's a good idea. Let's call Hushai, but God is setting him up. Call Hushai the archite and let us hear what he has to say. Verse six, when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, thus has Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. So this is what the other plan is. What is your advice? In verse seven, Hushai says to Absalom, this time the counsel of Ahithophel has given is no good. Hushai said, you know that your father and his men are mighty men and they are enraged right now. Like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. And besides, your father is an expert in war, wilderness war at that. He will not spend the night with his people. Behold, even now, as he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place, and as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, there has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. You're not getting your dad tonight. He's too smart for that. Then even the valiant men whose heart is like the heart of a lion will utterly melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and that those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel is that all of Israel be gathered to you. Take some time, my man. Rally some troops. Don't go tonight. Give it a few weeks. Send out a call to the whole nation and get everyone to follow you. From Dan to Beersheba as the sand by the sea for multitude. And that you go to battle in person. Gather the largest army you can and lead them out to war. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground. And of him, all the men with him, not one will be left. And if he withdraws into the city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city and will drag it to the valley until not even a pebble is there to be found. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai, the archite, is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. Why? Because he was stroking his eagle. Don't let Ahithophel go out tonight and get it, get David. Give David some time, gather all of the troops, and then you lead the army out to battle. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. There it is. There it is. Hushai the advice. Hushai is given the opportunity to give advice and the advice he gives are the very words of God to hamstring Absalom and give David the victory. Hushai tells Absalom, look, don't go out tonight rally all the troops. That period of rallying the troops gives David enough time to rest, regroup, and gather his troops and get ready for war. Had David been captured or pursued that night, he would have been captured because David is helpless. He can't see clearly. His head is in a fog. 
but God through the wisdom of Hushai gives David time. Did you catch that? David is out in the wilderness in the middle of nowhere and we're told in verse 14 that with no strength in his own body to protect himself, miles away from the decisions that are being made, God is working. This is the great news I told you about at the beginning of the message. For those of you who are swimming in regret because of past failures as a shepherd, responsibility or leadership responsibilities God has given you and and you failed at that, I have such good news for you. Those things are not wasted on the God who oversees all. Your life, your, your mistakes, they're not a waste. If you're looking back on your life and thinking, man, I, I would have done it different with my kids. Man, get in line. That's all of us. Every one of us thinks the same thing. But God is a God who redeems those mistakes. That's the good news. That's the joy that the the scripture is presenting us today. When David, in his utter failure and no strength whatsoever because of his past failures as a shepherd over Israel and a failure as a shepherd of his own family, doesn't matter. God loves David and he's gonna redeem his failures and it's gonna become part of his testimony. And that is the news for you today. You don't have to keep swimming in all of that sorrow and sadness because that sorrow and sadness God is going to use for his purposes to transform you. That's the good news. Now as we finish 15, 17, 15 up to the beginning of 18, we see God continuing to work on David's behalf. It doesn't just stop with Hushai. David is out of the picture, no power, head is clouded, can't see clearly, but what is God up to? Saving David, loving David, preserving David. Story after story in the end of 15, beginning of 18, God protects the messengers who bring the plan to David. Then we find out that God removes Ahithophel from the picture. The moment Ahithophel realizes what God is up to and that no one's gonna listen to his advice anymore, he goes home, he prepares all of his affairs and then he hangs himself. He's out of the picture, no more advice from Ahithophel. And then as we see at the end, as we get into the 18, that God is even using the forest to fight on David's behalf in this town, Mahanaim. Let me show you a map. I don't, wanna, I don't want you to leave without a map. You gotta have a map. <laughs> so this is the region we're zooming in on. This is the path that David took. He left Jerusalem. <clears throat> Started down here in the Dead Sea. He went up the Mount of Olives, went to Baharim, then crossed over the Jordan, and then went up to Mahanaim. This is where the battle is taking place. It's up in Gilead, it's up in the mountains, and there are trees everywhere. And we're told that the trees worked against Absalom. The men of Absalom were tripping on roots and falling on their own swords. God is working on David's behalf when David has no strength and no advice, no knowledge on what to do. Let's finish the story in 18.8. 
There's one more scene where God shows himself strong on David's behalf. We're told that the battle spread over the face of all the country and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David and Absalom was riding on his mule and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak and his head caught fast in the oak and was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. You see that? God used the hair that he gave Absalom to get caught in a tree that God created in order to ensnare him. Nobody, nobody caught Absalom. God caught Absalom. God took care of the situation. And where is David? He's hiding. He's hiding in the woods because his men told him don't go out to battle and the Lord is fighting on his behalf. Verse 11, Joab said to the man who told him, what, what you, you saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you 10 pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, look man, even if I felt in my hand the weight of the thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. I've heard the stories of people who just delivered messages to David that he didn't like. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai, the Etai, for my sake, protect the young man. I heard at the beginning of 18, David's instructions to you to go easy on Absalom. We all know that was bad advice, but he's not thinking clearly, but I'm not going to take his life. Verse 13, on the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against you as life and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. You would have been killed. David would have killed you. And Joab said, look, I'm not going to waste my time like this with you. So he took three javelins in his hand and he thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak tree. And 10 young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. And then Joab blew the trumpet and the troops came back from pursuing Israel for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones and all Israel fled every one to his own home. And Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley for he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. So I called this pillar after my own name and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. And with that, the judgment on the house of David finally comes to an end. And who did it? God. God said it and then God ended it. From start to finish, God was involved in all of it. His fingerprints are everywhere. For six chapters, we see Absalom thinking he is the man. He is gonna rise to power. He's gonna challenge God's choices. He is going to take the throne that doesn't belong to him. He's gonna use his own ways, murder, adultery, mutiny, and he's gonna take the throne. And the whole time, we discover that this story isn't really about Absalom. It's about David. It's about David being under the judgment and consequences of God for his own actions, but not only the judgment and consequences of his own actions. And here's the truth, and here's the medicine. There are consequences to your sin. There are consequences 
to you being a weak, wicked, or sinful shepherd. There are consequences and you can't escape it. You don't get to do whatever you want. We have a God who picks sides. In his eyes, there is righteousness and there is wickedness. There is good and there is evil. There is no blurring of the lines like we do today. He is a God who picks sides. And if he gives you a responsibility and you act wickedly or you act, if you act aloof and you let the responsibility fall to somebody else, there are consequences to that. But there aren't only consequences to that. There is also mercy. And there is also grace. Because your God loves you. And all of those consequences that come from our failures are somehow in his great mercy used for his good. They're, they're refashioned for our own testimony. And people see it and they say, how in the world did that come out of this? And you get to say, because of God. It's not something I did, if you would have seen me when all this was going on, you would have known that I had no part to play in this. This was not me. This amazing garden in the middle of a desert that God planted was not my own doing. I wreck things. I make mistakes. I speak out of turn. I put my thumb on people and keep them in their place. That's what I'm good at. What my God is good at is loving me and redeeming me and taking those failures and building something beautiful with them. This is the story that we close on Absalom. It's not about Absalom. It's about David and the way that God loves his people and the way that God works on behalf of his people and saves his people and refashions their entire story for his purposes. The story, as I said, started with looking at shepherding failures. Six chapters ago, we started with David's failures, and now we're ending with God redeeming every single one of them. And I'm leaving this with you because I know it may be difficult to see, because right now, all you see is noise and tragedy, and your mind is clouded, and you don't know if you're supposed to stay in this job or go to a different one. one parenting is one of the hardest things that you'll ever do because you, you don't get to pick the moments that your kids will remember. You have to faithfully continue in love and kindness, in discipline and love. You have to faithfully demonstrate God's character to them all the time because you don't get to pick what moments they will remember. You don't get to pick how they're going to think about you when they grow up. And you don't get to know how they're gonna grow up until they grow up. And so the whole work is a work of faith. Those of you who have grown kids, you know what I'm talking about. Those of you who are, your kids are just, your family is just starting, man, buckle up, it is wild. You're looking at these kids and you're just like, man, like, I just lost it at that moment. Is that what they're gonna remember of me? Hey, I got bad news, maybe, maybe, but maybe not. And if it is that moment that they remember, what will it say to them when they are older and they see a different you? This is what's, the, the, I think probably one of the most fascinating things in the entire world to me is the transformation work 
of a parent to a grandparent. Isn't it fascinating? Do you know why it's like that? Because grandparents were parents and they learned from their mistakes. Parents are in the middle of the mistakes. They got nothing to learn from. That's why grandparents, they're such good grandparents because they were parents and they learned from the mistakes. And that's why when you look at your parents, you're like, how come you were like that when I was growing up? (laughs) Because they were learning. And so what do we make of all of this? What we make of all of this is that God is working in the middle of sorrow and regret and failure and consequences. What we make of this is that your past mistakes are not the end of your story. If they were, David's doomed. But he's not doomed because he has a loving Savior who's looking out for him, protecting him and redeeming him. David was not a perfect man, but God wasn't looking for a perfect man. He was looking for a man whose heart was surrendered to him. And when presented with the reality, you're a failure. You made this mistake and you can't run from it. He didn't like Saul, excuse it, pretend it wasn't him. Blame it on someone else. He fessed up and he said, you're right. I have sinned and it broke him. And he dealt with the consequences and God loved him through it and transformed him. So, if today, or even after last week's message, you feel like a failure. If last week you felt like you were just sitting there being beat with the hammer of God's word, I have failed as a shepherd. I wasn't a good parent, or, or man, you're young, I failed as a child, I haven't been a good child. I've put my kids, or I put my parents under unbelievable stress because I wanted my way and not God's way. Look, you can be 13 and come to this reality. I pray that you do. But if you're feeling right now in this moment that you're a failure because of parenting issues, child issues, you felt as an employee or as a man or a woman or a shepherd or a Christian, I have good news for you. You are in good company. You are counted among the family of God, the misfits who all make mistakes. You are not counted among a family who all got, always got it right and was always perfect. You are counted among a people who pretty much always got it wrong, but God loved them and saved them and redeemed them. Now that does not give you an excuse. It doesn't matter, I got a free pass. It doesn't matter what I say or what I do. God's gonna, no, 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 no. Just because grace abounds in sin doesn't mean that you can sin more so that grace will abound even more. There is an expectation on you to shepherd the pasture you have been given. But in those failures, the good news from God's word is that he is redeeming those failures behind the scenes without you even knowing what is going on. Listen to me. There are some of you in here right now that are struggling with a situation with a child who is a prodigal and they were wayward and you're wondering in your mind, are they doing that because of a decision I made? Hear me. Let yourself off the hook. At some point, everyone grows up to an adult and they have to make the decisions for their own lives and you are not responsible for those anymore. When they stand before a holy God, they will give an account for their lives, not your life. 
Let yourself off of the hook and read 2 Samuel 16, 17, and 18 and know that even if you did fail and they are blaming you for it, that there is someone that God will send in their path to give them wise counsel and in your complete lack of being able to do anything, if you trust that God will send someone, you're gonna be blown away at what the next 12 months are gonna look like. Hear me, this is what he does. He specializes in not letting you know what he's up to and working anyway because he loves you and he loves your child. You go ahead and apply that across the entire board. If it's a marriage situation, if it's a parent situation, if it's a work situation, you did something against the law at your last employment and it's on your record and it haunts you everywhere. And you're thinking every employment opportunity I go to now, that's gonna show up again. You serve a pretty small God if you're afraid that your future is charted by your own decisions and not his overarching sovereign power. So take this word, let it sink into your bones and let it apply across. I don't care what news you got, I don't care what you're struggling with, I don't care how bad you think things are or how clouded your mind is, it doesn't matter. There is a God in heaven who sits at the right hand of the Father who, enter, who, who forever intercedes on your behalf and is working on your behalf and you don't need to know the details. All you need to know is that he is working and he will be glorified and he is in the business of redemption. Amen? Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us and God bless.